This morning we find ourselves in God's Word at Titus chapter 1 as we continue our series, uh, our new series in the book of Titus. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Titus chapter 1 this morning. Titus chapter 1. Last week we began a new series on the book of Titus and we saw the Apostle Paul writing to his faithful partner in ministry named Titus. And we explored who Paul was, what were the circumstances uh, surrounding his writing to Titus and who Titus was and what he was doing in Crete. And this morning as we continue working our way through the book, we come now to the specific instructions that Paul gives to Titus for his ministry. And what we will see this morning is that the central focus of his concern and his instructions is all about godly leadership and how to raise it up among the churches in Crete. And we have uh, a lot uh, in this small portion of text, so we want to get right to it this morning. Let me encourage you to follow along as I read, beginning at verse 5. Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. May God bless the reading of his word. Again, from these verses, Paul tells Titus, this is what the letter is going to be about. This is why I am writing to you. And he is reminding him why he left him in Crete. But he's also telling him, here's how you're going to go about doing the assigned task. And really, uh, the rest of the letter unfolds out of verse 5 of of Paul explaining, here's how you put things in order and here's how you appoint elders in every town. And this morning what we want to see is that both by the example and teaching of Titus and by the elders he establishes, Paul shows us the importance of godly leadership in ordering his church. And as we see this unfold in the passage before us, first we see that it is Titus himself who is to provide direction for godliness. Titus is meant to provide direction for godliness. Previously, Paul had been through Crete where he had preached the gospel and he had started churches. And although we do not know exactly when this took place, it's most likely after his first release from his Roman uh, imprisonment. Titus had been with him on that missionary journey through Crete, uh, which is a place that the ancient writer uh, Homer called Crete of a Hundred Cities. In other words, it was a well-populated island. It wasn't just... uh, out in, the, out in the wilderness somewhere where nobody was. It wasn't some kind of a, a quick pop-in, share the gospel, and, and we're out of here kind of thing. There was significant time spent in Crete going from city to city to city to city to city, sharing the gospel and starting churches. Now, if you're not up on your biblical geography, you should know that Crete is an island in the Mediterranean Sea in the south of modern-day Greece. And I imagine if someone asked you, hey, how about a mission trip to the Mediterranean, Some of you probably wouldn't hesitate to go and suffer for the Lord there. The only problem is, in this balmy, beautiful place, Crete was no easy mission because Crete was known historically for its wickedness. In fact, later in this chapter, as we will see in a week or two, Paul says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of his own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. 
And having been there, Paul adds his remark, this testimony is true. So what Paul says is we went to Crete, and what do we find? We found a bunch of pagans. We found a bunch of gluttons. We found a bunch of liars. We found a bunch of evil beasts. And he will go on and describe all kinds of other sins. It was not someplace that the grace of God had fell heavily on. They were raw sinners. And so there was this hard work of bringing the gospel to them in the midst of that sin. And yet, the gospel had been preached. The gospel had taken root. Churches were established. But what Paul is saying is now the work's not done. The gospel has a foothold, but now we want to see it grow. Now there is the need to continually teach the Cretan Christians what the Christian life looks like in contrast to their previous life of pagan ungodliness. And wrapped up in this, there is the problem of leadership. Paul has been there, but he can't stay forever. That's not Paul's calling as an apostle. If we, we picture gospel ministry penetrating into darkness like a spear, Paul is the tip. He, he, he is, he is the, the part that goes in immediately. He paves the way for others to come behind him. Therefore, he sends Titus to finish what was left. Specifically, he says that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. That was the task of Titus here. He was to put into order what remained from the work of church planting among these pagan people and establish godly leadership in the churches there. Titus' approach then was to first set an example himself serving as a godly leader in Crete. That is to say, he, by his own teaching and lifestyle, he was meant to set the pace and the standard for all those that he would appoint and set in place in the other churches. The idea of setting something in order implies and assumes that something is already out of order. And in many ways, that is a good description of anyone's life before they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are out of order with God and the universe. What we need more than anything is to be set right, to be put back in order with what we have created to be. And so as one pastor called his sermon series on Titus, from chaos to Christ, that's pretty much what Paul is getting at, the task that he has set for Titus. These people have already believed the gospel. They've already heard of the one true God who created all things and who rules in sovereign power over creation. They heard that this creator made humanity in his own image and put him in a good world in which to dwell and to thrive and to know him. And yet that good creation, humanity, rebelled against its creator. They turned their back on him who graciously had given them all things to seek after false gods, loving idols instead of the one true God. The result was they lost their fellowship and the blessing that they had enjoyed and had tasted with God. Now they tasted death instead. They had heard, though, about this one true God who came and lived among his, his creation taking on the flesh of humanity, bearing their sin upon himself, that he might redeem them and restore him to fellowship that they were created to enjoy. These Cretans had heard that message, and by faith in that incarnate God, Jesus Christ, they had turned away from their idolatry and were enjoying redemption in their Creator and their Savior. In the most important, in the most fundamental way, they had already been put in order. They had already been made right because their fundamental relationship as God's image bearers to God himself was now correct. But there was more to be ordered. There was more to be set right. There was still the chaos of their old sinful lives that needed to be put into order. Imagine it like this. Imagine a person who suffers a, a terrible fall 
And that person, uh, she not only dislocates her leg, but she also breaks the bone. The first thing the doctor is going to do is to, is to set the tip of that bone back up into the joint where it's supposed to be. But then the bone still has to heal. And there's a real sense in which that is what happens to us as Christians. The bone is set back in order. It's in the right place, but now it still has to heal. It still has to come back to being what it is supposed to be in its fullness and in its wholeness. And just like us, so also for the Cretans. They have been tainted by the ungodliness of their previous sinful lives, and now that needs to be cast off. Titus needs to show them what it means to live a godly life as God's people. He needs to show them what it means to be remade into the image of Christ. That's what he's called to do in Crete. But more than that, that is what we are called to do today. As God's people, we are to remember we have a sinful past, a past that needs to be shed, a past that needs to be put off, that only happens by the grace of God. We've been made right, we've been set in order, but now spiritually we need to continue that healing process. It needs to continue to have the full effect that God desires. And so by looking to Christ, the pattern into which we are to be remade, we are to continue to trust Him as our Savior, to delight in His person and His work, to follow His teaching, to worship with His people, all that we might continue to grow in godliness. That is the ongoing calling of our lives in the world. And one of the biggest helps that God has given uh, to his people for this journey of holiness and growth and coming into deeper fellowship with him is leadership in the local church. This brings us to the second task that Titus was given. He was supposed to establish leadership for godliness. He was supposed to establish leadership for godliness. There was a general ordering that needed to be done. There was also a specific ordering that he was told to to do. In verse 5, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And Paul here explains what those elders are to look like, what kind of men they are to be, as well as what they are to do. And And in doing so, he gives Titus guidelines for this task of appointing elders. And as we work through these verses, you need to understand this is something more than just a reference point for a pastor search committee. These are meant to be ongoing qualifications, not just an entrance exam for elders. That means two things for those of you that are sitting here as members of this church. First, you've got to hold the elders to these standards. You don't just say, well, they were good enough to get in and now it's done. No, there is an ongoing standard that is to be maintained. If we are flagging in those areas, then you call us on it. You prayerfully, humbly come and say you're not living up to the expectations that Paul and therefore God has for leadership in the church. Secondly, knowing this is an ongoing standard, you should pray for your elders with this passage in mind. I will take all the prayer I can get from me and my family. But what I don't want you to do is to just pray prayers of the just be with him God variety. I don't don't want God to just be with me. He's already with me. what, what, What I desire, I think what, if I can speak for them, what the other two elders in this church desire is for you to sit down with a passage like this knowing this is God's will for our life. And pray for these specific things for us. This is what he expects of us at the beginning, the middle, and the end of our life in ministry. In ever-increasing ways. So pray for us. Pray for these specific things. Pray that we remain faithful. That we grow in godliness. That we persevere as men of God until God himself calls us home. 
that's the application for what we're going to look at now. What does Paul tell us about elders? Well, first he tells us about the elders' team. The elders' team. Notice first that Paul tells Titus to establish elders. That means more than one. It's plural. In every town he is to do this, with the implication being that in every town there is a church, and so in every church there is to be not just one elder, but a multiplicity of elders, a team of leaders in ministry. And that is the consistent pattern throughout the Bible. Except when the word is used in the abstract, that is to say when it's used to describe what an elder might look like, whenever actual elders are spoken of, it's always in the plural. So, for example, in Acts 20, Paul called the elders of the church of Ephesus to come to him, that he might instruct them how to minister when he left. In 1 Timothy 5, he speaks again about the elders in Ephesus. In Hebrews 13, the author tells the Christians to remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Then he goes on to say later in the book, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls for those who will have to give an account. Again and again and again, more than one leader is seen over any particular church. The question is, why is this plurality important? Why did God establish this pattern of more than one man providing leadership to his people in a local church? Well, Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C., identifies at least three ways in which having more than one elder is beneficial to the church. First, having a plurality balances pastoral weakness. It balances pastoral weakness. No pastor is so broadly gifted in ministry that he can do it all. No one man has all the gifts that God might give a man. And therefore, to help balance out the weakness in certain areas, other men come alongside and form a team. Secondly, having a plurality of leadership adds pastoral wisdom. Sharing leadership with uh, other elders always keeps pastors from saying dumb things or doing dumb things. I know this by experience. I have been saved much grief by other two men who give me wise counsel in saying, no, I don't think that's going to go well. That's not the right way to approach it. Let's, let's do this instead. Third, having the plurality of elders indigenizes leadership. That is to say, there is something fundamentally wrong when the pastor leaves. The church immediately looks from some, to someone outside the congregation to come in and begin leading. Sometimes that's necessary. And that's what needs to take place. But how much better to, to raise up the leadership from within the, the, your, your, the, the congregation? I talked with a guy yesterday. He said uh, he was pastor of a church that had been there 50 years. And I'm looking at him and thinking, you don't look that old. Well, he hadn't been that old. His grandparents had come to that church, raised his parents in that church, and he was raised in that church, and now he was the pastor. And I thought, surely that's got to be the best way to do it, if at all possible. They grow up knowing these people, loving these people. They are loved by that people, and they ascend into leadership. The one thing that we don't want is for God to take me out of this world and for the church to be running around like a chicken with its head cut off. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? That's not not the state the body of Christ needs to be in. Instead, we've got two faithful men who just step up and they begin leading. And the church goes on. I would add two more from personal experience, humility and encouragement. It's not just practically helpful to have brothers to learn from. It's also spiritually beneficial. It helps reduce the, the temptation to pride from being just one guy calling all the shots all the time as the authority in the church. It's also encouraging, though, especially in tough times, to look across the table at two other men and, and an elders meeting and know they're with me. They're, they're with me in ministry. They're behind me. We're all in this together. There was meant to be a team of elders in each church, but who can serve as an elder? That's what Paul turns to next. He gives us the elders' qualifications. 
the elders' qualifications. And here Paul sets down guidelines about who can and who cannot serve as an elder. And the first thing he talks about is his reputation. His reputation. The list of qualifications begins with this statement that an elder should be one who is above reproach. Now that doesn't mean sinfully perfect and having no flaws. First of all, because when you take the teaching of the rest of the Bible, including Paul himself, you realize that's an impossibility. Humanity is by definition in this life sinful, and therefore they will always struggle with and have the taint of sin. No one will be perfect no matter how godly they are. What Paul is getting at here is the very, the very thing that I've labeled this point as, and that is the man's reputation. Paul is saying there cannot be some sin that is so obvious, so overt a character of flaw, something that is so publicly known that it would prevent him from ministering effectively. There cannot be something that is so obvious. You look at a man and alarm bells are going off. People inside the church and outside the church are saying, how can that guy be a pastor? Can't have that. Therefore, he must be above reproach. And in fact, that, that heading or, or that phrase serves as a kind of heading that Paul unpacks the rest of the qualifications. So he must be above reproach. That's his reputation. And how his, shall his reputation be known? In his family. That's the second thing. Paul says the elder is to be the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now much has been written about these verses, particularly the part about wives. Some will argue it means a man can never be divorced. Others say that even if a man's wife dies, he can never remarry. Now I think the first option, uh, divorce, is wrong for a few reasons. Most obviously this. If Paul meant to say he cannot be divorced, he picked the most awkward way in the world to say it. He uses the word divorce multiple times in other letters. Why didn't he just say he can't be divorced? Instead, he has this phrase, he has, he has to be uh, the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man. Okay? Furthermore, the second option doesn't hold much weight because the Bible never forbids someone remarrying with the death of a spouse. In fact, it is sometimes encouraged by Paul. Why would that not be the case for an elder? Probably speaking, I think we take it at its simplest, and I believe the qualification is about simply about the number of wives a man has. In other words, he cannot be a polygamist. Now, that may not seem like a big deal for us because we have a long history of that being illegal and not a part of our culture, unless you're from Utah. But in the ancient world and in other parts of the modern-day world, that, that still means something. Because if you've got tribal peoples... Uh, that don't mind a man having more than one wife, the, what you will find is the only thing keeping often a man from doing that is his ability to provide for those wives and the children that will come. So if you've got someone who has two, three, four, five wives, and he's able to support them and provide them and love for him, the other people in the village are going to say, wow, what an amazing guy. What an amazing leader that is able to provide for and manage such a big household. We should have him come in and manage the church and provide leadership there. And Paul says, no. That doesn't work. That doesn't work because fundamentally the pastor is a representative of Christ. And Christ exclusively has only one bride, his church. And therefore the pastor's life is supposed to reflect the love of Christ for the church after which marriage itself is patterned. One man with one woman for one lifetime. And so this, this kind of raw... One man, woman uh, qualification speaks to something much larger as well, and that is not just fidelity in number, but fidelity in heart. In fact, the heart is more important even for the pastor, again, because his life among anyone else 
is meant to reflect the love of Christ for the church. So he may go home to one woman at night, but is that the only woman he loves? Does he have a wayward heart and a wandering eye always imagining what else might be? Furthermore, is the wife happy in the marriage? Does he love her in a way that is sacrificial and peaceable and brings her joy? Those are all things that would flow out of a man who truly is faithful to one wife. And again, such fidelity points to the fidelity of Christ himself, as all marriage is supposed to. The elder's marriage is in view, but so are his children. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, believers is a legitimate translation, but an unfortunate one, I think, because it implies the children are saved. Well, practically speaking, how does that work? Uh, you know, when Ellie was born, if my kids were already saved, if she's not saved, do I have to stop being a pastor until she gets saved? Then I come on board? Or is it, if they reach a certain age, they're not saved, then I have to stop becoming a pastor? Or all my kids have to grow up, be saved, and then I can start serving as a pastor? Practically speaking, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think that's why uh, some older translations, including the King James, gets it better when they translate the word as faithful. Both faith to believe and faithful living both come from the same root word in the Greek, pistis. And so I think that's the better way to translate that. Number one, because it, it fits well with the rest of the verse, so they can't be subordinate or, or be debaucherous, but also because it matches the, the, the rationale that Paul gives in the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3 when he says, the, why should the pastor have a, world, a well-run house? Because if the family cannot follow his leadership, what makes you think the church can follow his leadership? The point here is that very thing. He must be able to lead his family or else he cannot lead his church. D.A. Carson provides a picture of what this looked like in his own family as the son of a pastor. He says, Not all men are eligible to be elders in the church, but most are eligible to be elders in the home. In that sphere, their responsibilities are somewhat similar. I want to see elders in the church leading family worship, teaching children the way of God, thinking through patterns of modeling and discipline, for this is what demonstrates the qualification for similar roles in the church. Spiritually speaking, the worst Christian home is the one with high spiritual pretensions and low performance. The best is the one with low pretensions and high performance. I say that out of gratitude and respect to my parents. My parents didn't think of themselves as anybody. Yet I cannot remember a day in all my life when my father didn't pray at least 45 minutes. And, he knew that he, and we knew that he was praying for us and for the church and for his ministry. Burned in my memory is my mother sitting in the kitchen with her open Bible on her knees. My father was never a threat to us from his ego. He just didn't operate on that plane. And when I left home, I could never dismiss them as old fogies or hypocrites. I had been a lifelong witness to the integrity of their lives. Such should be the testimony of any elder's children. But there is more. An elder must be above reproach in his family life, but also in his character. In his character. In verse 7, Paul says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He repeats it again. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Arrogance is the first character flaw deemed unacceptable for pastoral leadership. Why? Because leadership often brings with it prestige and power. And there's the temptation to allow that to move us into an area of pride whereby we become arrogant in our task. We avoid advice and criticism, only wanting to have our egos stroked and our whims fulfilled. And Paul says, such is not the character of a man who will serve as an elder in God's church. Nor is one to be quick-tempered. Someone asked me this weekend, uh, 
why at 35 I, I had such amount of gray and even white. They said, do, do you have a family history of that? My, my response, somewhat true, somewhat jokey, was, I think it's the job that I have. The reality is, sometimes, not very often, but sometimes in different situations you deal with people that just want to drive you insane. You love them, but they drive you insane. And the question is, how are you going, how are you going to minister to them? If you're quick-tempered, then they're going to grate on your nerves and you're going to fly off the handle and lose your cool every five seconds. And Paul says you can't have that. You're dealing with people. People are fundamentally different from you. They have different preferences, different ways of thinking. And you you, you can't be quick-tempered. You can't just be flying off the handle all the time. You've got to have a low boiling point, as it were. So that way, everything's cool. And you know how to continue to serve and to minister and to love even in difficult situations. He must also not be a drunkard. Certainly alcohol is in view here, but I think that speaks to a broader application of any kind of addiction that lies behind it. The elder must not be controlled by his desire or passions, whether it's for alcohol, drugs, pornography, food, or anything else. Furthermore, a pastor is not to be violent. You're probably like me. You had uh, guys and really boys at that point in high school. Their first impulse was to solve every problem by throwing a punch. And, and by the time you're kind of in your senior year, they're kind of a laughing stock if they're still that way. Because everybody else has kind of matured above that. Yeah, freshman, you kind of expect it. But by the time you're 17, 18, it's like, come on, you know, grow up with the rest of us. In the workplace, it's usually not very acceptable to throw punches, and you're gone pretty quick. But here's the thing. How often, how often are we violent with our words as much as with our fists? Maybe even more so. Paul says that cannot be the part of the character of an elder, someone who is violent, whether it's in his attitude, in his words, or his fists. Finally, he is not to be greedy for gain. It does not take long to look around, to think back to recent history and see that the desire for wealth has been the downfall for minister after minister after minister after minister after minister. Some who even already had great wealth. The calling for the minister is to trust God to meet his needs through his people, even if those needs are not what he would expect. It, is, it reflects a contentment that says, I will not love things more than Christ. That's what the pastor should not be. Positively, what should he be? Verse 8, an elder should be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Being hospitable means that the pastor cannot be a hermit or a recluse. I remember reading about um, A.W. Pink, who was, wrote all kinds of books, great scholar, but as soon as he was done preaching, he would, go into his pul- he would go back to his office, close the door, and study for two or three more hours. You can't do that. As you, <laughs> ministry is about people. If you want to be a scholar, then, 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 then you, you go to a, a, a somewhere where, uh, where scholars hang out and you be a scholar. That's okay. But if you are called to be an elder in a church, you have got to be hospitable. You cannot be one who hides from people. You've got to be one who loves people, welcoming them into your, into your home along with all of their baggage and problems. Being a lover of good means he is one who delights in the very things that reflect God himself. This is hard to, to quantify, but as I was thinking about some maybe, maybe even extreme examples, but ones that are the less that get to this, on the simplest level, the guy that you want to be a pastor is not going to be the guy who takes great pride in having the box set of all the Saul movies on his mantelpiece. Okay? Movies that just glorify violence and gore and filth. That's just not, that's not, this is not a lover of good. 
He may, in fact, though, be the person who only has a dollar bill in his pocket, but joyfully gives that over that a, a, a guy, a homeless guy on the street, has a sandwich from McDonald's. Remembering that when he does it for the least of them, he is doing it for Christ. Self-controlled and disciplined go together as do upright and holy. The former virtues speak to the man's control of his time, his resources, and his life, rather than being controlled by them, while the latter two speak to the nature of his relationship to man and to God. He is upright, fair, and just before men, and he is holy, pious, and devout before God. Now, when we think about all of these things, here is the rub as it is. What we see is that the character of an elder is simply this. At the very least, he is to be a Christian man. Because the reality is you can find every single one of those vices and virtues applied to every Christian who has ever lived in Paul's letters. So all of the things that, that Paul says an elder must not be this and he must be this, he has elsewhere said a Christian must not be this, but he must be this. The point I think that we should take away, at least one of them, is that there is not, there is not a sense in which the pastor must be a cut above the rest, some super Christian in all that he thinks and all that he does. Instead, it means he is supremely, supremely meant to be simply a great example of one who loves and follows the Lord Jesus Christ. What sets him apart from everybody else, though, is this. It's his ministry. His ministry. This is the last thing we look at this morning. The elder's ministry. Paul says he is to be an overseer, that is, God's steward, and must therefore hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now already, as I have been speaking, I have been interchanging terms, pastor and elder. And here Paul gives us another term, overseer. And the reality is, when you see those words in the Bible, they're just simply different words that speak to the same position, the same uh, person, the same leader in any given local church. The difference, though, is that the title, the way that they're described, is emphasizing something different to their ministry. Pastor is probably, perhaps... Perhaps the most familiar term today, it is a Latin word uh, for pastor. In the culture of the biblical world, the shepherd was the one, or excuse me, the Latin term for shepherd. I think I misspoke there. Pastor is a Latin term for pastor. How about that? It's the Latin word for shepherd. In the culture of the biblical world, the shepherd was the one who fed, the one who nurtured, the one who guided, the one who protected and disciplined the sheep. Not just abstractly, but personally. He lived in and with his people, his people, that is, the sheep. And that's what the pastor is supposed to do. Elder is a term that comes from both the culture of the synagogue and the village. It's just one who has a measure of maturity, not just in years, but in their thinking and in their doing. The maturity they have comes from wisdom that is given by God. The other term here, overseer, comes to the world of government and business and was commonly used in the Greek world for those who managed city governments. It speaks to oversight of a people. And all of these words point to the diverse responsibilities that is tied to the role of an elder. He is to be a mature believer, not just one in age, but one who has acquired wisdom in his walk with the Lord, both in his understanding of the word and in how to apply it to everyday life. He is one who intimately shepherds God's people, knowing their needs and seeking to meet them, protecting them from harm. He is also one who is called to maintain oversight of the souls of his flock, directing the ministries of the church, guiding it in the right direction for their sake. In all of this, then, the elder is God's steward, that is, a caretaker over God's church. And he does so by care taking 
care, well care of God's word and how it is proclaimed, taught, defended, and preserved among his people. In fact, that is how the elder leads the people of God, is by the word of God. And so in verse 9, Paul says that the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the one qualification that sets apart the elder from everyone else in the church. They are godly men, but they may not be called if they cannot, if they cannot, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, if they are not able to teach. And here Paul explains what that means. First, he protects and he remembers the Christian faith. Notice that he doesn't add to it, he doesn't change it, he doesn't let it fall away. Instead, he holds firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. So Paul here envisions that the elder is one who was taught the faith. Someone taught them what Christianity was. They taught them what the gospel was. Taught them what Christian doctrine was. They received that. They remember that. They don't tamper with it. They don't tinker with it. They don't come with something new. They simply remember it and continue to teach it. They are hold it as one who is trustworthy. That means the one who is an elder must be passionate about doctrine, especially the gospel. He is not simply agreeable to it. He is passionate about it. He embraces it with all of his life, with all of his heart. He loves the great truths of God through Jesus Christ. In doing so, he wants also then to teach others that truth. Through his preaching and preaching, he gives instruction in sound doctrine. At the very least, then, he is feeding the sheep. But at a more profound level, he is investing in them. Both theological content that he received, but also he is trying to convey his passion for that content, for the doctrine of God. He is passing on the truth of God's word to them and investing in them that they may in turn pass it on to others. So, so just as, as I stand on this pulpit now, there, there are those of you that are out here that because I love you, I want to give you the truth of God in a way that you understand it and can apply it and come to love it and believe it. But there are some of you, like myself, who are parents, and I want you to take all that I give to you, and I want you to turn around and put it into your kids. And, and, and if God would so preserve my life and, 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 and providentially keep them here, then as your kids grow up in this church, I continue to invest in them so that their kids, your grandkids, will be the recipients of that doctrine and love and, and living it out. This is what Paul envisions the task of the elder to do, not begrudgingly, but joyfully. But there is also defensive work as well. He's not only providing instruction in sound doctrine, but the elder rebukes those who contradict sound doctrine. I always think it's interesting how different pastors and, and prominent preachers will talk about others in the pulpit. Some will seemingly every week call out some famous pastor on something he's said or done wrong, and others say, no, I never do that publicly. I think what Paul is talking about for the most part here is false teachers within the church that uh, that, uh, that the elder knows they're hearing bad doctrine and therefore he confronts those that are teaching it, uh, rebukes them, and seeks to protect the sheep from that false teaching. But, there's a, but as we seek to think and apply that today, there's a big difference between our world and Paul's world. We are connected globally in a way that he could never have fathomed. What took him weeks and months to get from one side to the other takes me blips of a second 
as bits and bytes flow across a phone line somewhere and pull up a video screen of uh, some dude on the other side of the world. I mean, it, it's amazing. We live in a 24-hour news cycle. We live in an endless stream of blog posts and podcasts and television broadcasts. And there are times when very prominent people say things, and for the sake of the people in the church who you know have heard what was said, you need to confront and say that was wrong. So, for example, in recent days, as Pat Robertson has said some incredibly stupid things, uh, you need to be told, ignore him, don't listen to him, and know he's off his rocker. So I'm saying to you this morning, don't listen to him, ignore him, and know he's off his rocker. He does not represent well the doctrine of the church and its implications for life as have been passed down from the apostles. This is how the man of God oversees the people of God and cares for them, like a loving shepherd with his sheep, fighting off wolves and leading them to food. This is where the authority of the elder derives, not from his own wisdom or success, but by his right handling of the word of God, supported by the example of his godly living. Why is this issue so important? Why is getting church leadership right so important? Ultimately, ultimately, it's because they serve after the pattern of Christ's own ministry. They are supposed to point you back to him and be a living example of what Christ himself has done and continues to do for his people. Peter says that elders are to shepherd the flock of God, remembering that the chief shepherd is returning for their sheep. He says that in 1 Peter chapter 5. Christ, then, is the perfect elder who wisely teaches his people through the word and the spirit. Christ is the perfect overseer who sovereignly governs the lives of his people with loving authority. Christ is the perfect shepherd who protects and cares for his sheep, even to the point of laying down his own life for them on the cross, that they might find forgiveness and reconciliation to their creator and king. In this way, Christ is both the message that the elders preach as well as the example that they follow. May the church learn from their example as well. Father, we are thankful for your word and for its truth. In some ways, Father, I feel as if this sermon has been for just three men in this room. And Father, having been reminded not just during the week but this morning of the great calling that you have called us to, the great responsibility that you have placed on us. Father, my heart is both incredibly humbled and convicted, but also soars with joy that I have this privilege to stand here and to fulfill these duties that you have called me to. Father, I pray that you would continue to grow within the three of us pastors' godliness, understanding of your word that leads to changed life in ourselves, the ability to, to bring that life-changing truth to others. But God, I also pray for your people here. I pray, first of all, God, that they would take encouragement from the example that we provide. But more than that, Father, I pray that uh, seeing the responsibilities of any pastor, whether it's me or someone else, that God, they would come to appreciate the gift that you have given in leadership and that they would pray for their leaders that they would seek to imitate their example when they succeed, that, Father, they would lovingly come aside and correct when they fail. Father, we pray that through your word and your spirit that you would be crafting us and shaping us into the people that you desire us to be. 
And God, I pray that you would, as you have promised to do so mercifully, use the leaders that you have appointed to do that. May they be, may we be, God, a blessing and an encouragement to your people. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.